there's that famous story of the oak tree and the reed. A story that we're very likely to have encountered in childhood and which forms one of that very diverse body of ancient stories known as Aesop's Fables. In the story, the oak boasts about how incredibly strong it is and berates the reed for bending over in even the slightest breeze. But then, of course, inevitably, the wind begins to blow really strongly and in the ensuing storm, the oak is toppled over and destroyed by the blast. Whereas the reed, although once again bent over and flattened, it survives unharmed. Stories like this one that we hear when we're growing up, they can teach us useful lessons. The story of the oak and the reed encourages us to question that which may present itself to us as strong and resilient, but which might be in truth perhaps rigid and inflexible, and consequently something that doesn't prove to be enduring at all. But perhaps as well as imparting some useful lessons, the fables that we grow up with also incorporate some pre-assumptions of their own. And before going on to consider what some of those might be, I want to throw another of Aesop's fables into the mix. Another one, again, that very likely was read to us by parents or teachers. The wind and the sun were disputing which was the stronger, begins the fable. Suddenly they saw a traveller coming down the road, and the sun said, I see a way to decide our dispute. Whichever of us can cause that traveller to take off his cloak shall be regarded as the stronger. You begin. So the sun retired behind a cloud, and the wind began to blow as hard as it could upon the traveller. But the harder it blew, the more closely did the traveller wrap his cloak around him, till at last the wind had to give up in despair. Then the sun came out, and shone in all its glory upon the traveller, who soon found it too hot to walk with his cloak on. Both of these stories seem to have something wise to say about the nature of strength, about how to apply force in a wise and effective manner. Fortitude, of course, is considered as one of the four cardinal virtues. Fortitude is about courage, about strength. It's the cultivation of 
an attitude, a state of mind that enables us to resist adversity with the intention of ultimately overcoming that adversity so that our own intentions can prevail and hopefully we're able to maintain our integrity. The fable of the oak and the reed maybe shows us how the cultivation of fortitude perhaps a little counterintuitively depends upon being flexible, adapting and changing in the face of circumstance. And the fable of the north wind and the sun perhaps sets out for us how the cultivation of fortitude is very likely not synonymous with an attitude of aggressivity and brute force, but one that more wisely is likely to include elements of compassion and empathy and persuasion rather than just opposition. If fortitude is a virtue and fortitude consists in being resilient, in being able to endure and in being strong, then evidently there is virtue in strength. But what the fables remind us is that strength is not some kind of inherent quality in us that we either have or don't have. Rather, strength can consist in the way that we respond to situations. Our strength is in the manner in which we interact and is not, as we might tend to assume, something that's completely ours, something that we can expect to flick on and off like a switch. That might tend us towards a view that people are strong or weak by their nature, regardless of how they interact with the circumstances they're up against. But if that were truly the case, then surely the world would be a far more predictable and simple place than seems to be the case. It would seem indisputable that manifestations of strength can appear unexpectedly in people and groups and in ways that hitherto might not have been suspected or imagined. So far, so good, perhaps. We've arrived at the notion that strength and the exercise of strength is best conceived as contextual. 
something inherent in the response to circumstances rather than some kind of fixed quality that people either have or don't. But in this idea that strength and fortitude is contextual, there also lies a potential danger. Looking back at those two fables we considered, perhaps it's curious that both take the form of a contest. The oak not only boasts about its supposed strength, but it also goes out of its way to berate the reed for being so bendy in the breeze. And in the second fable, the contest is even more explicit. The sun sees the traveller coming along the road and takes this as an opportunity to set up a kind of duel with the wind. And it's very interesting here, perhaps a little suspicious as well, how the contest is concocted by the victor, the sun. There's maybe even the sense here that the sun is setting up the north wind to fail. In both fables, could it be that there's a sense of a setup? Because can it really be said that oaks are in competition with reeds? That the sun is in competition with the wind? These aren't stories about people, about human beings, but about anthropomorphized aspects of the natural world. The notion of competition, challenge, opposition is something that really can only occur in the human mind. That danger, to try and put it as succinctly as possible, is the trap of confusing what it is that qualities like fortitude and strength are good for dealing with, with those actual qualities themselves. It can be helpful to cultivate fortitude when we face opposition, when we face challenges and adversity. But we have to beware, I think, that fortitude and strength consists in being oppositional, in being challenging. We can take on board the lesson of the fables that the manifestations of strength and fortitude are contextual, dependent upon circumstances. But we have to go beyond that, I think, and also recognise that although fundamentally the world is 
full of beings realizing their own nature. It's only at the level of the human world where being gets put into question. Should this thing prevail or should that one? Should we get rid of this thing here or that one over there? It's only when being is put into question in that way that a sense of opposition or competition arises. So it's always important to ask ourselves where these questions are coming from. Who's asking them? If we're confronted with some kind of adversity, some kind of opposition or challenge, are we perhaps being set up in the way that perhaps the wind is set up in the fable about the sun and the north wind. In recent times, there has been a lot of debate in psychology and therapy about resilience and coping mechanisms and coping skills. And I imagine I barely need to rehash here the criticisms that have been levelled at those kinds of ideas. It's often suggested that we need to develop this quality of resilience in order to maintain our personal mental health. But by situating the responsibility for that in the individual, might it be the case, just possibly, that this distracts us from criticising conditions in wider society that may have led to the distress that individuals experience? And indeed, wouldn't that be very convenient for the people running that society or the people who benefit from it being the way that it is. Again, this confronts us with how it's important not to confuse fortitude and strength with being resilient and being good at coping. Is it truly strength if we're managing to hold our own in a challenging situation, when that challenge is not of our own choosing and when it might not even be necessary to have to face this challenge at all. In that case, being resilient, coping, managing to hold our position despite what reality is throwing at us, all that's being achieved there perhaps is merely sustaining the adverse situation that necessitates our struggle in the first place. A large part of the cultivation of fortitude can be about picking and choosing what challenges we decide to accept and recognising those that actually don't deserve or warrant a response from us. 
in the tarot, the card strength or force or lust, as Alistair Crowley entitled it. It's one of the cards most consistently interpreted and most frequently shows the figure of a young woman subduing a lion. Sometimes it can look as if she's forcing the jaws of the lion to open and sometimes it looks as if she's forcing the jaws closed. There seems to be a powerful feminine energy associated with this card. And that's striking because it might be thought that forcing open or closed a lion's jaws might be a task better suited to the upper body strength of a man. It's almost as if the tarot is alerting us to the counterintuitive qualities perhaps of strength and fortitude. Because what the image on this card often confronts us with is perhaps a scene that we're less likely to associate immediately with strength, but more perhaps with beauty. In the history of the development of this archetypal image, there have been some variations, and some of these have included a male figure and a much more masculine energy. Sometimes this card has been rendered as a bare-chested, Hercules-like figure, pummeling the lion into submission with a club. This is maybe a bit literal and far less evocative and subtle. Also, more interestingly, down the centuries, this archetype has been depicted as a person, again, exclusively a woman, leaning against or embracing a stone column and breaking it with their brute physical strength. Also curious, maybe, is that in a couple of the renditions of this particular theme, it looks as if the woman is breaking the column unexpectedly. It's as if her physical position is suggesting that she herself is taken by surprise at what she's done. So... When we have a male figure in play, a guy with muscles beating the crap out of a lion, we get a fairly literal and unsubtle depiction of strength. But when it's a female figure, the dimensions opened up are far more evocative and subtle. There's a depiction of strength, but it comes as well with 
a sense of beauty, grace, and also something revelatory, surprising. Could it be that there is some deep link between the qualities of strength and beauty? Certainly, we seem to see this played out sometimes in tensions between the sexes. For women, there can sometimes be frustration in how their expressions of strength may be judged not as socially acceptable as expressions of beauty. And although this gets talked about less often, I think, there can be frustration for men that the only socially sanctioned form of male beauty is through some kind of orthodox demonstration of strength. What if, underneath all this, strength is beauty, beauty is strength, the two necessarily always go hand in hand? Unlike the guy (laughs) swinging the club at the lion, the woman subduing the lion by taking its jaws in her hands. What she's doing often looks strikingly effortless. The anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot writes the following. Effort signifies the presence of an obstacle, whilst natural integrity on the one hand and undivided attention, on the other hand, exclude inner conflict, and therefore every obstacle, and therefore all effort. Just as perfect concentration takes place effortlessly, so does true force act without effort. Force, or strength, is the arcanum of the natural integrity of being, or power without effort. Because force subdues the lion, not by force similar to that of the lion, but rather by force of a higher order and on a higher plane. What Anonymous is pointing out here leads us back to what we were exploring earlier. How it might prove grave mistake if we suppose that strength, fortitude, is all about meeting opposition with opposition of our own, meeting like with like. What the author of Meditations on the Tarot seems to be pointing out here is that's precisely what the woman with the lion doesn't do. She's not meeting the force of the lion with an equal and opposite force of her own, but doing something instead that appears curiously effortless. In fact, says Anonymous, this is what characterises true strength. What she's actually bringing into play is 
undivided attention and integrity of being. She's not actually doing anything at all. She's not acting as such. She's leaving that to the lion. We considered earlier the importance, where possible, of choosing the challenges that we want to take on and trying to avoid those that might be mere setups for us to fail or ones that engaging with will merely result in sustaining a set of circumstances that are undesirable from the outset. Another thing that we have to confront is that no matter how strong we are, no matter sometimes if we're as strong as we possibly can be, this is no guarantee of success. This is where what Anonymous described as integrity of being, natural integrity, comes into play. When we are confronted with adversity, if we do that by embodying sincerely, to the best of our knowledge, what is good and true, then even if we're defeated, there's a way back from that. But if we confront adversity without that kind of natural integrity, but merely with brute force, meeting like with like, then when we're defeated, what will be left? There's maybe no way back in that case, and are we even deserving of one? If we, to the best of our ability, try to embody in ourselves what's good and true, then are we not, at the very least, putting on a semblance of goodness and truth? if not the actual things themselves. And what might be another word for the semblance of goodness and truth, if not beauty? In Neoplatonic thinking, beauty is not as high an ideal as the good and the true. What beauty offers is an appearance of those, and appearances in Neoplatonic thinking are not commensurate with the ideal. However, the distinct advantage of beauty over goodness and truth are that beauty is immediately perceptible, it's sensible. When we're confronted with something beautiful, we don't have to ask ourselves, is this really beautiful? In the same way that we may have to ask ourselves whether something is genuinely good or genuinely true. Beauty has a palpable power. It is commanding. It impels and persuades. In 
not attempting to respond to the strength of the lion merely by attempting to counteract it with an equal and opposite force. Instead, if we decide that the challenge of the lion necessitates a response, it's probably best to meet it with some kind of entirely different force, to which, hopefully, it will be able to offer no resistance whatsoever. If we can embody to it that which is good and true, then how could it possibly resist the overwhelming strength and the beauty of that? 